0: section nine of a social history of the american negro by benjamin griffith Brawley. this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter five part two the policy thus formally enunciated was already in practical operation in the closing days of the administration of john quincy adams a delegation came to washington to present to the administration the grievances of the cherokee nation the formal reception of the delegation fell to the lot of Eaton, the new secretary of war the cherokees asserted that not only did they have no rights in the georgia courts in cases involving white men but that they had been notified by georgia that all laws usages and agreements in force in the indian country would be null and void after june one eighteen thirty and naturally they wanted the interposition of the federal government eden replied at great length reminding the cherokees that they had taken sides with england in the war of eighteen twelve that they were now on american soil only by sufferance and that the central government could not violate the rights of the state of georgia and he strongly advised immediate removal to the west the cherokees quite broken acted in accord with this advice and so in eighteen thirty two did the creeks to whom jackson had sent a special talk urging removal as the only basis of federal protection to the seminoles as early as eighteen twenty seven overtures for removal had been made but before the treaty of fort moultrie had really become effective they had been intruded upon and they in turn had become more slow about returning runaway slaves from some of the clauses in the treaty of fort moultrie as some of the chiefs were quick to point out the understanding was that the same was to be in force for twenty years and they felt that any slowness on their part about the return of negroes was fully nullified by the efforts of the professional negro stealers with whom they had to deal early in eighteen thirty two however colonel james gadsden of florida was directed by lewis Cass the secretary of war to enter into negotiation for the removal of the indians of florida there was great opposition to a conference but the indians were finally brought together at payne's landing on the Aklawaha river just seventeen miles from fort king here on may ninth eighteen thirty two was wrested from them a treaty which is of supreme importance in the history of the seminoles the full text was as follows. Treaty of Payne's Landing, May 9, 1832. Whereas a treaty between the United States and the Seminole Nation of Indians was made and concluded at Payne's Landing on the Aklawaha River on the 9th of May, 1832, by James Cadston, Commissioner on the part of the United States and the Chiefs and headmen of said Seminole nation of indians on the part of said nation which treaty is in the words following to wit the Seminole indians regarding with just respect the solicitude manifested by the president of the united states for the improvement of their condition by recommending a removal to the country more suitable to their habits and wants than the one they at present occupy. In the territory of Florida, are willing that their confidential chiefs Jumper Fucha to Hadjo, Charlie e. Manthla, Koe Hadjo, Holati Amanthla, Yaha Hadjo, Sam Jones, accompanied by their agent Major John Fagan and their faithful interpreter Abraham, should be sent at the expense of the United States as early as convenient to examine the country assigned to the creeks west of the mississippi river and should they be satisfied with the character of the country and of the favorable disposition of the creeks to reunite with the seminoles as one people the articles of the compact and agreement herein stipulated at payne's landing on the Ocklawaha river this ninth day of may one thousand eight hundred and thirty two between james Cadston for and in behalf of the government of the united states and the undersigned chiefs and headmen for and in behalf of the seminole indians shall be binding on the respective parties article one the seminole indians relinquish to the united states all claim to the land they at present occupy in the territory of florida and agree to emigrate to the country assigned to the creeks west of the mississippi river It being understood that an additional extent of country proportioned to their numbers will be added to the creek territory and that the seminoles will be received as a constituent part of the creek nation and be readmitted to all the privileges as a member of the same article two four, and in consideration of the relinquishment of claim in the first article of this agreement and in full compensation for all the improvements which may have been made on the lands thereby ceded the united states stipulate to pay to the seminole indians fifteen thousand four hundred dollars to be divided among the chiefs and warriors of the several towns in a ratio proportioned to their population the respective proportions of each to be paid on their arrival in the country they consent to remove to it being understood that their faithful interpreters abraham and cudjo shall receive two hundred dollars each of the above sum in full remuneration of the improvements to be abandoned on the lands now cultivated by them article three the united states agree to distribute as they arrive at their new homes in the creek territory west of the mississippi river a blanket and a home spun frock to each of the warriors women and children of the seminole tribe of indians article four the united states agree to extend the annuity for the support of a blacksmith provided for in the sixth article of the treaty at camp moultrie for ten years beyond the period therein stipulated and in addition to the other annuities secured under that treaty the united states agreed to pay the sum of three thousand dollars a year for fifteen years commencing after the removal of the whole tribe these sums to be added to the creek annuities and the whole amount to be so divided that the chiefs and warriors of the seminole indians may receive their equitable proportion of the same as members of the creek confederation article five: the united states will take the cattle belonging to the seminoles at the valuation of some discreet person to be appointed by the president and the same shall be paid for in money to the respective owners after their arrival at their new homes or other cattle such as may be desired will be furnished them notice being given through their agent of their wishes upon this subject before their removal that time may be afforded to supply the demand article six the seminoles being anxious to be relieved from the repeated vexatious demands of foreign slaves and other property alleged to have been stolen and destroyed by them so that they may remove unembarrassed to their new homes the united states stipulate to have the same property properly investigated and to liquidate such as may be satisfactorily established provided the amount does not exceed seven thousand dollars article seven the seminole indians will remove within three years after the ratification of this agreement and the expenses of their removal shall be defrayed by the united states and such subsistence shall also be furnished them for a term not exceeding twelve months after their arrival at their new residence as in the opinion of the president their numbers and circumstances may require the emigration to commence as early as practicable in the year eighteen hundred and thirty three and with those indians at present occupying the big swamp and other parts of the country beyond the limits as defined in the second article of the treaty concluded at camp moultrie creek so that the whole of that proportion of the seminoles may be removed within the year aforesaid and the remainder of the tribe in about equal proportions during the subsequent years of eighteen hundred and thirty four and five in testimony whereof the commissioner james gadsden and the undersigned chiefs and headmen of the seminole indians have hereunto subscribed their names and affixed their seals done at camp at Payne's landing on the Ocklawaha river in the territory of florida on this ninth day of may one thousand eight hundred and thirty two and of the independence of the united states of america the fifty-sixth signed james gadston l s holadi emantler his x mark jumper his x mark cujo interpreter his x mark erastus rogers b joskin holadi emantler his x mark jumper his x mark fuchta lusta hadjo his x mark charlie emantla his x mark koi hadjo his x mark pi or sam jones his x mark yaha hadjo his x mark miko noha his x mark takosi mantla or john hicks his x mark Ket Sha Tusta his x mark halat amiko his x mark hitch it i Miko his x mark ha his x mark yaha emantla chopko his x mark moki his shelarni his x mark now therefore be it known that i andrew jackson president of the united states of america having seen and considered said treaty Dubai, by and with the advice and consent of the senate as expressed by their resolution of the eighth day of april one thousand eight hundred and thirty-four accept ratify and confirm the same and every clause and article thereof in witness whereof i have caused the seal of the united states to be hereunto affixed having signed the same with my hand done at the city of washington this twelfth day of april in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and thirty-four and of the independence of the united states of america the fifty-eighth signed andrew jackson by the president lewis mclean secretary of state it will be seen that by the terms of this document seven chiefs were to go and examine the country assigned to the creeks and that they were to be accompanied by major john fagan the successor of humphreys and the negro interpreter abraham the character of fagan may be seen from the facts that he was soon in debt to different ones of the indians and to abraham and that he was found to be short in his accounts while the indian chiefs were in the west three united states commissioners conferred with them as to the suitability of the country for a future home and at fort gibson arkansas march twenty eighth eighteen thirty three they were beguiled into signing an additional treaty in which occurred the following sentence and the undersigned Seminole chiefs delegated as aforesaid on behalf of their nation hereby declare themselves well satisfied with the location provided for them by the commissioners and agree that their nation shall commence the removal to their new home as soon as the government will make arrangements for their emigration satisfactory to the seminole nation they of course had no authority to act on their own initiative and when all returned in april eighteen thirty three and Fagan explained what had happened the seminoles expressed themselves in no uncertain terms the chiefs who had gone west denied strenuously that they had signed away any rights to land but they were nevertheless upbraided as the agents of deception some of the old chiefs of whom micanope was the highest authority resolved to resist the efforts to dispossess them and john hicks who seems to have been substituted for sam jones on the commission was killed because he argued too strongly for migration meanwhile the treaty of payne's landing was ratified by the senate of the united states and proclaimed as in force by president jackson april twelfth eighteen thirty four and in connection with it the supplementary treaty of fort gibson was also ratified the seminoles however were not showing any haste about removing and ninety of the white citizens of Valachua county sent a protest to the president Alleging that the Indians were not returning their fugitive slaves, Jackson was made angry, and without even waiting for the formal ratification of the treaties, he sent the document to the Secretary of War with an endorsement on the back, directing him to inquire into the alleged facts and, if found to be true, to direct the Seminoles to prepare to remove west and join the Creeks. General Wiley Thompson was appointed to succeed Fagan as agent, and General Duncan L. Clinch was placed in command of the troops whose services it was thought might be needed it was at this juncture that osceola stepped forward as the leading spirit of his people Four, osceola and the second Seminole war osceola asceola or assihiholar sometimes called powell because after his father's death his mother married a white man of that name was not more than thirty years of age he was slender of only average height and slightly round-shouldered but he was also well-proportioned muscular and capable of enduring great fatigue he had light deep restless eyes and a shrill voice and he was a great admirer of order and technique he excelled in athletic contests and in his earlier years had taken delight in engaging in military practice with the white men as he was neither by descent nor formal election a chief he was not expected to have a voice in important deliberations but he was a natural leader and he did more than any other man to organize the seminoles to resistance it is hardly too much to say that to his single influence was due a contest that ultimately cost ten million dollars and the loss of thousands of lives never did a patriot fight more valiantly for his own and it stands to the eternal disgrace of the american arms that he was captured under a flag of truce it is well to pause for a moment and reflect upon some of the deeper motives that entered into the impending contest a distinguished congressman speaking in the house of representatives a few years later touched eloquently upon some of the events of these troublous years let us remember that this was the time of the formation of anti-slavery societies a pronounced activity on the part of the abolitionists and recall also that nat turner's insurrection was still fresh in the public mind giddings stated clearly the issue as it appeared to the people of the north when he said i hold that if the slaves of georgia or any other state leave their masters the federal government has no constitutional authority to employ our army or navy for their recapture or to apply the national treasure to repurchase them there could be no question of the fact that the war was very largely won over fugitive slaves under date october twenty-eighth, 1834 general thompson wrote to the commissioner of indian affairs there are many very likely negroes in this nation the seminole some of the whites in the adjacent settlements manifest a restless desire to obtain them and i have no doubt that indian raised negroes are now in the possession of the whites in a letter dated january twenty eighteen thirty four governor duval had already said to the same official the slaves belonging to the indians have a controlling influence over the minds of their masters and are entirely opposed to any change of residence six days later he wrote the slaves belonging to the indians must be made to fear for themselves before they will cease to influence the minds of their masters the first step towards the emigration of these indians must be the breaking up of the runaway slaves and the outlaw indians and the new orleans courier of july twenty seventh eighteen thirty nine revealed all the fears of the period when it said every day's delay in subduing the seminoles increases the danger of a rising among the serviles all the while injustice and injury to the indians continued well known as one of those chiefs to whom special reservations had been given by the treaty of fort moultrie was the owner of twenty slaves valued at fifteen thousand dollars observing negro-stealers hovering around his estate he armed himself and his men the kidnappers then furthered their designs by circulating the report that the indians were arming themselves for union with the main body of seminoles for the general purpose of massacring the white people face to face with this charge ikon gave up his arms and threw himself on the protection of the government and his negroes were at once taken and sold into bondage a similar case was that of john walker an apalachicola cola chief who wrote to thompson under date july twenty eighth eighteen thirty five i am induced to write you in consequence of the depredations making and attempted to be made upon my property by a company of negro stealers some of whom are from columbus georgia and have connected themselves with brown and douglas i should like your advice how i am to act i dislike to make her to have any difficulty with the white people but if they trespass upon my premises and my rights i must defend myself the best way i can if they do make this attempt and i have no doubt they will they must bear the consequences but is there no civil law to protect me are the free negroes and the negroes belonging to this town to be stolen away publicly and in the face of law and justice carried off and sold to fill the pockets of these worse than land pirates douglas and his company hired a man who has two large trained dogs for the purpose to come down and take billy he is from mobile and follows for a livelihood catching runaway negroes such were the motives fears and incidents in the years immediately after the treaty of payne's landing beginning at the close of eighteen thirty four and continuing through april eighteen thirty five thompson had a series of conferences with the seminole chiefs at these meetings my canopy influenced by Osceola and other young seminoles took a more definite stand than he might otherwise have assumed especially did he insist with reference to the treaty that he understood that the chiefs who went west were to examine the country and for his part he knew that when they returned they would report unfavorably thompson then becoming angry delivered an ultimatum to the effect that if the treaty was not observed the annuity from the great father in washington would cease to this osceola stepping forward replied that he and his warriors did not care if they never received another dollar from the great father and drawing his knife he plunged it in the table and said the only treaty i will execute is with this henceforward there was deadly enmity between the young seminole and thompson more and more osceola made his personality felt constantly asserting to the men of his nation that whoever recommended emigration was an enemy of the seminoles and he finally arrived and an understanding with many of them that the treaty would be resisted with their very lives thompson however on april twenty three eighteen thirty five had a sort of secret conference with sixteen of the chiefs who seemed favorably disposed toward migration and he persuaded them to sign a document freely and fully assenting to the treaties of payne's landing and fort gibson the next day there was a formal meeting at which the agent backed up by clinch and his soldiers upbraided the indians in a very harsh manner his words were met by groans angry gesticulations and only half muffled imprecations clinch endeavoured to appeal to the indians and to advise them that resistance was both unwise and useless thompson however with his usual lack of tact rushed onward in his course and learning that five chiefs were unalterably opposed to the treaty he arbitrarily struck their names off the roll of chiefs an action the high-handedness of which was not lost on the seminoles immediately after the conference moreover he forbade the sale of any more arms and powder to the indians to the friendly chiefs the understanding had been given that the nation might have until january one eighteen thirty six to make preparation for removal by which time all were to assemble at fort brook tampa bay for emigration about the first of june osceola was one day on a quiet errand of trading at fort king with him was his wife the daughter of a mulatto slave-woman who had run away years before and married an indian chief by southern law this woman followed the condition of her mother and when the mother's former owner appeared on the scene and claimed the daughter thompson who desired to teach osceola a lesson readily agreed that she should be remanded into captivity osceola was highly enraged and this time it was his turn to upbraid the agent thompson now had him overpowered and put it in arms in which situation he remained for the better part of two days in this period of captivity his soul plotted revenge and at length he too planned a ruse de guerre. feigning assent to the treaty he told thompson that if he was released not only would he sign himself but he would also bring his people to sign the agent was completely deceived by osceola's tactics true to his professions wrote thompson on june three he this day appeared with seventy-nine of his people men women and children including some who had joined him since his conversion and redeemed his promise he told me many of his friends were out hunting whom he could and would bring over on their return i have now no doubt of his sincerity and as little that the greatest difficulty is surmounted osceola now rapidly urged forward preparations for war which however he did not wish actually started until after the crops were gathered by the fall he was ready and one day in october when he and some other warriors met charlie imantla who had upon him the gold and silver that he had received from the sale of his cattle preparatory to migration they killed this chief and Osceola threw the money in every direction saying that no one was to touch it as it was the price of the red man's blood the true drift of events became even more apparent to thompson and clinch in november when five chiefs friendly to migration with five hundred of their people suddenly appeared at fort brook to ask for protection when in december thompson sent final word to the seminoles that they must bring in their horses and cattle the indians did not come on the appointed day on the contrary they sent their women and children to the interior and girded themselves for battle to osceola late in the month a runner brought word that some troops under the command of major dade were to leave fort brooke on the twenty fifth and on the night of the twenty seventh were to be attacked by some seminoles in the wahoo swamp osceola himself with some of his men was meanwhile lying in the woods near fort king waiting for an opportunity to kill thompson on the afternoon of the twenty eighth the agent dined not far from the fort at the home of the sutler, a man named rogers and after dinner he walked with Lieutenant Smith to the crest of a neighboring hill here he was surprised by the Indians and both he and Smith fell pierced by numerous bullets the Indians then pressed on to the home of the settler and killed Rogers his two clerks and a little boy on the same day the command of Major Dade including seven officers and 110 men was almost completely annihilated only 3 men escaping Dade and his horse were killed at the first onset these two attacks began the actual fighting of the second Seminole War that the negroes were working shoulder to shoulder with the indians in these encounters may be seen from the report of captain belton who said lieutenant keyes third artillery had both arms broken from the first shot was unable to act and was tomahawked the latter part of the second attack by a negro and further a negro named harry controls the p band of about a hundred warriors forty miles southeast of us who have done most of the mischief and keep this post constantly observed osceola now joined forces with those indians who had attacked dade and in the early morning of the last day of the year occurred the battle of oiflacoochee a desperate encounter in which both osceola and clinch gave good accounts of themselves clinch had two hundred regulars and five or six hundred volunteers the latter fled early in the contest and looked on from a distance and clinch had to work desperately to keep from duplicating the experience of dade osceola himself was conspicuous in a red belt and three long feathers but although twice wounded he seemed to bear a charmed life he posted himself behind a tree from which station he constantly sallied forth to kill or wound an enemy with almost infallible aim after these early encounters the fighting became more and more bitter and the contest more prolonged early in the war the dispersing agent reported that there were only three thousand indians including negroes to be considered but this was clearly an understatement within the next year and a half the indians were hard pressed before the end of this period the notorious thomas s jessup had appeared on the scene as commanding major-general this man seems to have determined never to use honorable means of warfare if some ignoble instrument could serve his purpose in a letter sent to colonel Harvey from tampa bay under date may twenty five eighteen thirty seven he said if you see powell osceola tell him i shall send out and take all the negroes who belong to the white people and he must not allow the indian negroes to mix with them tell him i am sending to cuba for bloodhounds to trail them and i intend to hang every one of them who does not come in and it might be remarked that for his bloodhounds jessup spent or said he spent as much as five thousand dollars a fact which thoroughly aroused giddings and other persons from the north who by no means cared to see such an investment of public funds by our order number one sixty dated august three eighteen thirty seven jessup invited his soldiers to plunder and rapine saying all indian property captured from this state will belong to the corps or detachment making it from st augustine under date october twenty eighteen thirty seven in a confidential communication he said to one of his lieutenants should powell and his warriors come within the fort seize him and the whole party it is important that he wildcat john cowagee and tustin be secured hold them until you have my orders in relation to them two days later he was able to write to the secretary of war that osceola was actually taken said he that chief came into the vicinity of fort peyton on the twentieth and sent a messenger to general hernandez desiring to see and converse with him the sickly season being over and there being no further necessity to temporize i sent a party of mounted men and seized the entire body and now have them securely lodged in the fort osceola wildcat and others thus captured were marched to st augustine but wildcat escaped osceola was ultimately taken to fort moultrie in the harbor of charleston where in january eighteen thirty eight he died important in this general connection was the fate of the deputation that the influential john ross chief of the cherokees was persuaded to send from his nation to induce the seminoles to think more favorably of migration my canopy twelve other chieftains and a number of warriors accompanied the cherokee deputation to the headquarters of the united states army at fort Mellon, where they were to discuss the matter these warriors also jessup seized and ross wrote to the secretary of war a dignified but bitter letter protesting against this unprecedented violation of that sacred rule which has ever been recognized by every nation civilized and uncivilized of treating with all due respect those who have had ever presented themselves under a flag of truce before the enemy for the purpose of proposing the termination of warfare he had indeed been most basely used as the agent of deception this chapter we trust has shown something of the real nature of the points at issue in the seminole wars in the course of these contests the rights of indian and negro alike were ruthlessly disregarded there was redress for neither before the courts and at the end in dealing with them every honorable principle of men and nations was violated it is interesting that the three representatives of colored peoples who in the course of the nineteenth century it was most difficult to capture toussaint louverture the negro asiello the indian and aguinaldo the filipino were all taken through treachery and on two of these three occasions this treachery was practised by responsible officers of the united states army End of section nine